All right, great. We'll start again, but I'm so happy to have you here. And, and those of you that are online, um, we want to welcome you too, because uh, you're here and you're, you're here in our hearts, and we hope that we are in your hearts as well. But for those of you who are here today, um, it's exciting to actually have a chance to see you and get together with you. I've missed Bible study. I've missed just the social part of it even, just hearing voices. Really nice to hear voices. <laughs> and, you know, last year I was thinking it, it didn't really bother me so much not to, not to meet and not to get together, but by the second year, it's getting a little long. And so um, really nice to have you here. And I'm really praying that this that this ministers to you, and that through what we are learning, you'll have a ministry, even though our lives are very, very different than what they were. So um, again, thank you for coming. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll start the, the Bible study. So Jesus, we thank you that we can be here. We just thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. We thank you for each person who is here this morning and each person who is listening online. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just be the teacher and work in our hearts so that we hear the word of God as you intended uh, to be given. We just ask you now, Lord, for your, your care upon us and your blessing in this time that we're together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do this next seven weeks is to really complete the Sermon on the Mount. We started the Beatitudes last fall, that is the introduction really to the Sermon on the Mount. And so this is a continuation of that. And what I would like to do uh, today is to start by reading. And if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, I want to take you back to the Sermon on the Mount and, and to the Beatitudes and remind you of some of the things that we talked about last fall. Now, I don't know about you, but th probably because I taught it and had to study it, those beatitudes, those short, simple sentences have just stuck in my mind. And oftentimes, I'll catch myself and remind myself that I have to go back and go all the way to the bottom to that very first beatitude and become poor in spirit and go before the Lord again and ask him to help me to depend on him. So let's go back to Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, for the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, <clears throat> for they will be called children of God or sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to go on <clears throat> and read through um, the section on persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
And then we get to today's lesson. And what Jesus does here is to take those things that he talked about, those characteristics from the Sermon on the Mount, and now he asks us to begin to apply them. Now, he doesn't just throw us out there and say, do it. What he does is take us through a series of lessons on which are based really on the law, the law of God, the, the law that God gave to Israel. And we're going to learn about that and how important the law of God is in our lives today. So I'm going to start with verse 13. I'm going to just take some time and read verses 13 um, down to 16. And we're going to talk, first of all, about the concept of being salt and light in the world. Truthfully, we need those beatitudes to help us be salt and light. Otherwise, we're just like the rest of the world. We need to do those things that the Beatitudes instructed us to do, to learn to walk in dependence upon God, in obedience to him. And then he comes to verse 13, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, these are familiar verses to you. And I want you to just think as we read, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, these are lofty statements. If you're a city on a hill and a light of the world, you're going to have an impact. And both of these terms, salt of of, um, the earth and the light of the world, are designed for impact. So I want you to think about that in our world today. They're images for impact. How are we impacting our world, even though we might be stuck at home, even though things are confined a little bit? God asks us to learn these things, and this is a kind of a good time to practice when you've just got a few people to practice on. They're probably the ones that are getting on your nerves about this time. So you are the salt of the earth, and then verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put it... uh, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Designed for impact. So salt, there's some things that we know about salt. We use it all the time and don't give it a lot of thought. But salt is used as a preservative, and and in the Old Testament, primarily those times, was used to preserve meat. But in the world today, we are to be preservatives of the Word of God, preserving what we know of the Word of God, preserving even what our nation knows of the Word of God, what our churches teach us, so that we live out among the people that we are with the Word of God. We preserve the good of the word of God. We preserve things. We also flavor things. Salt flavors. So we're to add or enhance life around us instead of making it worse. I don't know, some of you are probably on salt-free diets and your food suddenly doesn't have the same flavors it had before. But God asks us to enhance what we're around. Salt also purifies. You've probably heard the expression, don't rub salt in a wound. It hurts. 
but it also purifies that wound and helps to heal. And so when God says that we're salt, we need to think in terms of that impact that salt has on things, simple things. But he wants us to have an impact on the world around us. And then the light of the world. Light exposes the darkness, exposes what's hidden, keeps us from tripping up. It explains things, helps us to understand why things are blocking our way. And so again, light impacts. It impacts the darkness. And I want you to think about this particularly in relationship to even what our world is going through today. We live in a dark world right now. And the light of the world is Jesus. The reason that we are called and commanded to be the light of the world is because we know the one who says, I am the light of the world. And so in this world, Jesus asks us to make an impact. And that's what he tells the people that are sitting right in front of him. Because these are Jews who have had the word of God since the beginning. They have had all that is known of the law and of the prophets. And the problem is they're not living it. And that's what Jesus addresses here. Those of us who have the word of God, who claim to know him, but we don't live any differently or we live worse than those who claim not to know God. That's what Jesus is dealing with when he begins this Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, he is a new guy on the block, so to speak. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, don't really know what to make of him because he knows more than they do, and he speaks with greater authority than they do, and the people are flocking to him. And they don't know what to do with him. And Jesus is hard on them. He, and we'll find that out in today's lesson, he, he charges them with not being what they say they are. He calls them hypocrites. And the rest of the people that are listening to Jesus are his disciples, who are also new guys. They don't know a whole lot about Jesus. This is relatively uh, new in his ministry. Um, this is one of the earliest sermons in his ministry. Now, he's already been baptized. He's already been taken into the wilderness with Satan. He's already had some confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees. But this crowd before him is Jewish common folk, the disciples, and the scribes and the Pharisees, and maybe a few Romans and other Gentile people thrown into the mix. And it's a crowd that's come to hear him because what he has to say is different from what the scribes and the Pharisees have been teaching for so long. So when we read these words that we're the light of the world, we need to think of this very different rabbi who has come to teach these people sitting before him, and he irritates them. He irritates them. He irritates the religious leaders with the truth that he tells. So he ends this first part of this message that he gives with this wor these words in verse 16. In the same way, <clears throat> let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds 
and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You're to be seen. You're to make an impact on the world around you. Now, some days you might only have one person in your life, or maybe you don't even have anybody around you some days. Take that time to think about the impact that God wants you to make. And, and the Lord talks a, a lot today in our lesson about getting into the Word of God. So that's an opportunity that we can also use. So let's start with that, and then we'll go on and take a look at what Jesus has to say in the other uh, verses, we're going to take verses 17 down through 20. And the amazing thing in these verses is that this is where Jesus sets the stage for the Sermon on the Mount, the, the whole sermon. We'll start out with verses 17 and 18 and kind of camp on them for a minute, and then we'll come back and do 19 and 20. But let's just read verse 17. <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's not why I'm here. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And I tell you the truth, unless heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappeared from the law until everything is accomplished. And I'm going to keep reading. We'll come back and Pick these verses up. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Wow. Strong words. For people, especially the teachers of the law, that think they've got it all together. So let's look at Jesus' words. For <clears throat> First of all, we find out that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now these people had lived under the law, and we're going to talk about what the law is. The Pharisees and the scribes were supposed to be teachers of the law. They were supposed to excel in living the law. But their characteristics made the law impossible for people to follow. The way that they lived made it so that they were higher up than everybody else and no one could possibly keep the law as the scribes and the Pharisees gave it. When Jesus talks about the law, he is talking about the law as God gave it. But the scribes and the Pharisees have added like 637 other rules and regulations to that law of God, which taught men how to live and how to be holy. And they said, no, ours is better, our way is better, and you can be holy by following our law. But people could not do the things they were commanded to do by the scribes and the Pharisees. It was onerous, heavy upon them. So let's take a look at what the law was that Jesus came to fulfill. All right, we're going to talk about the, the law, divided into three parts, the law, and then there's the prophets. And that really comprised all of the teaching of the Old Testament 
that was available at the time Jesus was teaching. It's basically what we have also included in, in our Old Testament. <clears throat> so I'll have you turn back to um, the moral law, first of all. We'll just take some a brief look at this. But Exodus 20, let's just go back, and I, I just want to have you get familiar where, with what Jesus was talking about here. So we start in Exodus 20, and and we're not going to read these, but I just want to summarize what this is. This is the moral law that laid down the Ten Commandments and the moral principles that God laid down for the children of Israel. This was after they had come out of Egypt and were entering um, entering Canaan. In fact, this is given before they even got to the Promised Land. God laid down these laws um, for them to follow as to how to guide their, their moral behavior among the people they lived with. Have, having no other gods before them, um, don't make yourself an idol in any form before God. He goes on, don't misna- misuse the name of the Lord your God, keep the Sabbath day, and so forth. So in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 26, we have this laid out for us. Then Exodus 21, 1 through 24, um, 1 through Chapter 24, 11. Chapter 21, 1 through 24, 11. And this is the judicial law. This is the part of the law that laid out how men were to order their lives in relationship to other people. Gave the judgments for misbehavior and so on. And then there is the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law, or the ordinances, outlined the religious life of Israel. Laws concerning the sacrifices, um, the methods of worshiping, uh, the offerings that were were to be given in in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And this comprises the law of God. And so you have, and that is in Exodus 24, 12 through chapter 31, verse 18. These are laws that God gave to his people. Now these laws, to these laws, the scribes and Pharisees added all sorts of embellishments. Things that God never intended for them to add that became impossible for the people to to do. They would add minute things. We'll take a look at them in a a few minutes. Now, the other part of the law, um, Jesus talks about um, the law and the prophets. We have the prophets in our Old Testament also, and it includes the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. Um, We can start with Joshua, Judges, Um, We can go on in Ezra and Nehemiah and then go on to, uh, let's start with Hosea, Joel, Amos, um, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, what? Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Is that it? (laughs) You see, they had the law 
and the prophets, the word of God to them. And all of these were important. And Jesus says to them in these verses in Matthew, he says, not any part of this is unimportant. I've not come to do away with it. I am 100% behind the law of God. Now, when we think of laws, we think of them sometimes as onerous here, too. But these laws of God were designed to make men holy, as God is holy. God's commandment was, be ye holy as I am holy. And these laws were designed to put men in touch with God. Now, we find out later on in the New Testament, the law um, was impossible to follow, in fact, in Jeremiah, God recognizes this and he foretells that he's going to give them a new law. And he does do that. He gives them the law as we know it living within us. But at this time, they had the law and the prophets, and that was what God had given to them. And the problem was that they were not being taught how to follow those laws. Jesus says, I've not only come to tell you about them, but I've come to fulfill them. I'm going to live them out before you. And he does. He fulfills all of the law, all of the prophets in his lifetime. Now, there are some yet to be fulfilled. All of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. And I think you have that statement on your outlines. The, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. If you've heard that, that's a wonderful statement to memorize. The New Testament is in the Old Testament revealed. You can read the Old Testament and find Jesus. You can find that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. You can find that he's going to bear all of our sins for us, Isaiah 53. You can find that he is going to be crucified for us. The Old Testament reveals the new. You have to look for it. But they could find Jesus, the Messiah, and that's what God had intended, that they find the Messiah, and they look forward to the Savior. Remember in Luke, and he sh there, there shall be, and today a Savior is born. He is Christ, the King. All of that was foretold in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, the new is in the old concealed, and then the new, the old is in the new revealed. I should say it, the new is in the old concealed. If you read it and study it, you'll see the entire New Testament. And the old is in the new, played out before our eyes in Jesus' life and in the life of the church and the life of the apostles. It all fits. And Jesus is talking about the Old Testament here and he says, I've not come to do away with this. <clears throat> I've come to show you how to live it. And that's what he begins to do. So he gives his stamp of approval on the Old Testament. They had maybe hoped that he would do away with those laws that they found onerous. But he says, no. Not one bit of it is going to go away until every one of them is fulfilled. Until the end. So we need to take a look at this and ask, where does the sinner stand in relation to the law of God? Because if Jesus is going to fulfill it, and he says not one bit of it is going to go away until everything is accomplished, 
We have to understand that instead of removing the standards of the law, Jesus gave it all his stamp of approval. And the law of God will remain, he said, until heaven and earth disappear. So where does that put us? Where do we stand in relation to the law? And we're going to look at the New Testament to check that out. So let's turn in our Bibles, first of all, to Romans 3. Verses 9 and 10 we'll start with. I could, I could take you through many, many references in the New Testament. I had to pick a very, very few to, to show you how precious this is, this concept of the Old Testament being revealed in the New. And for us to see how Jesus fulfilled every part of what the Old Testament foretells. But here in, in Romans 3, verse 9, this has to do with the law. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. So I separate my pages here. I got a new Bible over Christmas. <laughs> um, no, we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. And this is a quotation from the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. I'll take you to verse 11 and 12. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. They have all become worthless. There is no one who, do, who does good, not even one. No one could keep that law. And so go over now to verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now, you see, all have sinned. And now we read, now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Here we go. What does, where does the sinner stand today in relation to the law? But now, a righteousness what? Apart from the law. A righteousness apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through what? What's the word? Faith. Comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who keep the law, to all who believe. Righteousness through Jesus Christ, through all who place their trust in him. And through him, by his Holy Spirit living in us, and I could go on and read from Romans 8 that talks about this, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and through the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness is credited to our account, and God sees us as holy and righteous before him. And then, through his presence within us, lives out the holiness of God through us as we yield our lives to him. So we are no longer having to keep this standard of all of these laws as we yield to Jesus who has already kept them all and wants to work out his holiness in us and through us. A righteousness apart from the law 
comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is his own perfect righteousness which kept that law. And he brings it to us. We have the law of the spirit of life in Christ living within us. Romans 8. Let me finish this. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believed. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Does that mean that the law is no good anymore? No. The law still stands. The law and the prophets, as Jesus taught them, still stands. Can we keep that old law? We cannot keep it until we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to live his holiness in us and through us. Okay? Now, let's go on from there to... The next reference I have is Hebrews chapter 5 or chapter 10. Verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Remember those old ordinances? But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. They could not take away the sin of mankind. But Jesus said, then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire. Nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And I said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Sets aside works, righteousness by works. To establish the second, righteousness by faith. Let's go up to um, verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. And after that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. Doesn't abolish those laws. Jesus lives them out in us and through us, the holiness of God. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he said, their sins and their lawless acts, because we could not keep the law, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill the law in all of its promises. And Jesus comes to live out the holiness of God in us. You know, when the Bible says, and we're going to get to this next, I guess it's two weeks from now when I teach lesson three, he says, be perfect as I am perfect. This is what he's talking about. I've come to live out my perfect life in you. And so he stands up there. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. 
have to watch my clock here so I don't keep you guys too long. Matthew 5. And he says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I do that in my sacrifice on the cross for you so that you can live a holy life. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And that's until Jesus comes and we're gathered together with him. That's all in the Old Testament too, that we'll be caught up to be with Jesus and be with him forever in his kingdom. So then he goes on and he's talking to this crowd And let's go back to verse 19 and see what he has to say to those people gathered before him. He says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Who do you think he's talking to? Specifically, who's the teachers in that time? Scribes and the Pharisees who are teaching others to do teaching others um, who break the law, first of all, and then teach others to do the same thing, break the law, doesn't matter. They have their own set of rules, and they do what they choose, and then they put heavy burdens upon the people. And so Jesus says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we hear that word least, we think, well, he's not going to be very important there. But in almost every commentary I read, it talks about the fact that that's just a kind word for saying they won't be there. They will not have followed the plan of salvation that God outlawed, and they won't be there. Anyone who does not obey what Jesus says, and he's talking about salvation here. They had the path of salvation for their own lives. But they're not teaching that to the people. But Jesus comes and reveals even that plan of salvation that was hidden in the Old Testament for these people sitting around them. Remember, he didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have Romans and Hebrews like I just read. So, he says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. Whoever practices and teaches these commands and, and does them rightly um, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says this, unless your righteousness, he's talking to the crowd, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven surpassing righteousness, better than, better behavior than the people who were held up as models of holiness. These are hard words, aren't they? Unless your righteousness is better than those religious leaders who are leading you astray, basically is what he's saying, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing is calling people to himself and to his word. Not man's plan, but his own plan for man. When we get into the next, the next elements of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see how very serious Jesus is about the, the law of God. 
And I'll tell you, both Michelle and I have talked about this. We have been humbled by what we've read and what we've studied. It makes us feel, in all honesty, like it's hard to get up here and teach it. Because God calls us to holiness after him, after his own model. Not the model of the religious leaders of their day, but after him. So I want to just show you a couple of examples from um, the Bible that talks about surpassing righteousness. And Jesus uses the Pharisees and the scribes as his example of how not to behave. Now, these are important people among the society. In fact, they're so important that they are held up way up here. And they themselves think they are better than everybody. And they go about with their noses high in the air and they don't want anybody dirty touching them. They follow laws of cleanliness that are ridiculous and impossible to follow. And Jesus talks about that. If you'll turn over to Matthew 23. Starting in verse 1, I want to read just four verses and then a couple of others. This whole chapter, by the way, pronounces seven woes upon the religious leaders. Woe unto you hypocrites, you teachers of the law, you hypocrites. And he calls them that over and over. Verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, highly elevated, highly respected. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. That's what people are taught. But Jesus says this, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. Wow. The king of heaven comes and tells them, these religious leaders don't do anything they tell you to do. They don't follow what they teach. They tie up heavy, heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And then I just want to take you to a couple of verses that he talks about down in verse 25. Let's go down there. Woe, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. <laughs> you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. The Lord looks on what? The heart. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Clean the inside of the cup. Don't worry about your beautiful robes, your trimmings on your robes. Don't worry about the bells on the bottom of your robes. Don't worry about taking the highest seat in the house or finding the best place to sit or the best place to do things, but think instead about the people around you. And go on from there. Down to verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and everything is unclean. What an insult he gives them. Don't follow these people. They're full of rottenness. Instead, listen to what I'm going to say to you. Now, these are really hard words because what Jesus does then is take these examples of holiness, so-called, 
and he says, don't follow them. And so um, I'm going to take you over to, let's see, let's look at Luke. Yeah, Luke 10. I want to take you over and just quickly give you an illustration here of how the Pharisees behaved. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, and you know the story well. But we don't often think of it as a rebuke to the Pharisees, and that's what it is. Because the Pharisees use this to test Jesus, and they mock him, and that's their favorite thing to do. So Luke 10, let's start with verse 25. Again, I want you to think of this. They're out to get him. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And he said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, these people are always told, this is what you have to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? You're the experts. How do you read it? And the Pharisee answers in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is that great law from Deuteronomy that we are all to follow. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This is how you are to structure your life. Love the Lord your God with all that you have, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Mr. Pharisee is a little proud of himself and he wants to justify himself before the Lord and say, well, I certainly am all this. So he asked Jesus, again, to trip him up, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor, Lord? Now, the Pharisees had one perception of neighbor, and that was it was only someone that looked just like they did. So Jesus is out here to show them that they need to go beyond that. Okay? More than just the person that looks just like you. More than the person that smells just like you. That behaves just like you. And so we have the story of the Good Samaritan. Which we, we tell our children. But this is something that Jesus uses to show us how we're to be among the people among us who we normally would just ignore. So I'm not going to take you through the entire story. You know it well that a Samaritan was on his way somewhere and a crowd of robbers fell upon him and just about did him in and threw him on the roadside. The Samaritans were absolutely despised by the Pharisees. They were half-breeds, and they were called dogs and worse names than that, okay? So Jesus picks somebody that he knows that they will not love. And so then he tells the story of the people walking along the road and, and their response to this man who is laying there. And the first one, the Pharisee would know well. He was a priest. A priest walked by, and what did the priest do for the man on the side of the road that was suffering? Absolutely nothing. He would have been one of them. The priest would have been one of the members that the scribes and the Pharisees would have honored. But the priest walks by the Samaritan. He doesn't do a thing about him. And the next one is a Levite, someone who worked in the temple. Again, someone associated with the scribes and the Pharisees. But he does the same thing as the Pharisees do. He walks 
away all around that man so he doesn't get dirty, so nothing touches him. And then a Samaritan, a half-breed, a dog, the least of the persons that the, that the scribes and the Pharisees would find any worth or value in walks by the man that's laying by the roadside. And this half-breed, this despised man, goes over and ministers to the man who is beside the road. And we know the story. He takes pity on him. He bandages his wounds. He pours oil on his wounds. He secures a place for him to stay. He gives money to take care of him. And Jesus tells this story. And then verse 36. Which of these three, he asks the scribe and the Pharisees, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Gulp. Which of those three? And the Pharisee is forced to answer. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus gives him a zinger. I don't know if he caught it or not, but he says, go, you scribe, you Pharisee, you religious leader, go and do likewise. Because they were the ones who would have never touched anyone lying by the side of the road. They had no love for the people. They had no care for those who would have been in need. And Jesus absolutely forces him to face himself. And we're not told whether he gets anything from the lesson or not. <clears throat> Probably thought, maybe not too important. But to Jesus it was, yes. Right. It's, it's, it's like a cancel. It's just this person did it, the one, but not a Samaritan. He could hardly say that. And I'm sure that that was part of their training, would not even recognize the name of that particular type of person. And so Jesus points it out very um, carefully. And the lesson that he wants to give us is, again, <clears throat> that our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And our neighbor is the person that we sometimes don't want to be next to. When we get into the lessons um, that we, Michelle and I, will be teaching on, on the Sermon on the Mount, we will find that the Lord goes behind these simple rules of love your neighbor, and he talks to us about what real love is. And all of it is summed up, and this is um, the standard that I want to talk about, and we'll end the, um, the lesson with these thoughts on the standard that Jesus wants to raise us to and a better righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because what we have here in this particular little story of the sermon of the Samaritan is we have an example of Jesus trying to stretch us beyond our own comfort zone, to take us out of where we normally live to see that neighbor beside us needing help. And the words that he um, has the, the uh, Pharisee repeat 
are words that you will find repeated in all of the Gospels and in the Old Testament. And I want to take um, on your outline, you have it printed there, Matthew 20, 22. Love the Lord your God <clears throat> with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. It's the Jesus law. We're going to see a lot of that in the Sermon on the Mount. Loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Love God with all that you have. Instead of the laws of God tripping you up, Jesus says, turn to God and find that righteousness which God alone can give. And so I want to go back to Matthew. Again, turn back to Matthew 5. <clears throat> and I want to just close with reading these verses again. I want to read just verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Love your neighbor, love God first with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Put him first. And then out of that fullness of God within you, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how does this relate to salt and light, to being what Jesus told us to be at the beginning of this lesson? You see, if we're going to have that influence in our world, and it's a tough world we live in, Jesus calls us out of our low comfort zones. And we get comfort comfortable, even in our homes. I mean, I find my home very comfortable sometimes now. I don't have to go out if I don't want to go out. You know, I can always use COVID as an excuse. But you see, God calls us to, first of all, place our hearts where his heart is. Love him with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our strength, all of our soul, every part of us. And then we can be salt and light to our neighbor. Otherwise, our righteousness doesn't surpass that of anybody. The Jesus law brings us to a higher standard where Jesus wants to live his life in us and through us to the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. It's hard at times. It's convicting, and we thank you for that. And we ask, Lord, that you would just work your work within us. Help us to understand this tremendous statement, to love you with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength, so that out of that, Lord, we can love our neighbor as ourself. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.